everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Mark Bookman. He is uh, an author and the co-founder of the Atlantic Center for Capital Representation. Uh, Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk uh, a bit about uh, his book, uh, A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. But um, I'm I'm really curious how you got into the death penalty work in the first place. So, you know, I I get asked this, this question a lot, mainly because I would seem to have very little personal ambition. Um, You know, I was a public defender for 28 years and I've been running this nonprofit for the last 10. And uh, I, I, you know, as a a public defender, um, I never really wanted to be anything else, but I also wanted to do the work kind of at the top of the pyramid. So uh, the death penalty is obviously that work. It, It involves the most serious cases and the most serious decisions. It's also fascinating for one other reason, which is that the the question of whether or not we should execute someone is really the only moral question in the law. Um, You know, all other questions are, you know, was the light green or was it red? Uh, You know, were the elements of the crime made out by beyond a reasonable doubt or were they not made out beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, The only moral question that we ever ask in any case, civil or criminal, I think, is this one. So it's certainly something that I, I think has always uh, attracted me, that, 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 that moral question. So I guess it's a combination of the most serious work and, and the most fascinating issue. And, you know, interesting that you brought up the moral issue because, you know, I think there are kind of two issues really with the death penalty. One is the moral issue. Um, and, you know, personally, I, I'm morally opposed to the death penalty, but I also think there's a functional issue as well, um, which in a lot of ways is much more interesting because we can, you know, the average person is going to agree or disagree whether or not there's a moral uh, problem with the death penalty. But there's a big functional problem with the death penalty. David, I could not agree with you more. Um, you know, if someone, if someone wants to tell me that, that uh, um, 
they don't have a moral problem with with the execution of someone who's committed a horrible crime. Okay, I'm going to disagree with them, but I'm I, you know I'm I'm I, I'm honest enough to recognize that there's a significant population that thinks that way. But the practical issues, I think, the practical issues are overwhelming and. It, I, to some extent, I always try to encourage people not to separate the two, because if if you if you really understand the practical problems, that has to affect the moral decision, and 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 so yes, the practical issues are are compelling to say the least. So, in terms of the practical issues, as you put it, uh, what do you see as the biggest problems, and and which ones do you kind of highlight in your book? So, you know, when I started out writing these essays, I really tried my best to focus on on individual issues. I tried not to overlap. Bad lawyers, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, uh, you know, improper judicial behavior, uh, uh, you know, whatever whatever the issue was. And I had quite a number of them. But the one issue that I think runs through almost every essay and cannot be separated out is, is the racist aspect of the death penalty. It, 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 uh, it permeates really almost every case. Um, and that, so that, that's, that's the one issue that, that I don't know how you overcome it, uh, you know, in our lifetime anyway. Um, so yes, that's the single, that's, some of these issues can be solved with money. You wanna get better lawyering, then, then provide them with prop, provide lawyers with proper resources and proper training and proper consultation. You're going to have competent lawyers handling these cases. You want to have, you want to affect prosecutorial misconduct, open, open files and, 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 and change the culture of prosecution from a win loss to a justice perspective. But how do you, how do you, how do you remove racism from the equation? I don't know if anybody's figured that one out. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big problem throughout the system. Obviously, I mean, one of the arguments I was making this week with respect uh, to to the police issues is that uh, what the Tyree uh, murder uh, really shows is that unless you can address systemic racism in the system, there there is no protection that that you're ever going to get. Um, and and the death penalty is kind of the same way. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a a cultural sea change is necessary, and and it and it and it comes slowly and 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 not steadily. I mean, in Philadelphia, we elected a, a true reform prosecutor, Larry Krasner, and he really is he really is a reformer. Other people have kind of used the label to get elected. He's a true reformer, and being a true reformer. You know, I, I, it's it's. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but it's like you know, I'm always thinking the Empire Strikes Back because they didn't. You know, the Empire, the the court administration, the the structure of criminal justice in Philadelphia over 40 or 50 years has not taken kindly to Krasner's reforms. These things are going to be slow. The, the cultural changes are going to take time. I mean, the Pennsylvania legislature impeached Krasner. Foolishly, because they just didn't like his his policies. But but you know, so this is this is a long, slow slog, and uh, and you're right. The Tyree Mitchell case is just it's just one more example about how 
you know, this change is going to be a long time coming. So where do we see racism come into play in the death penalty? Well, it's it's everywhere. Uh, you know, I wrote one of the essays is about is about a racist judge. And it, frankly, it's not it's not all that shocking that there would be racist judges. What was shocking about this essay uh, uh, for me or, or this story for me was that everybody knew he was a racist All the court court personnel and his family. And this guy was a true white supremacist and he didn't make any bones about it. He wasn't hiding it. He wasn't kind of secretive about it. Everybody knew. And yet no one said a word until he ran for county commissioner. That's when that's when everybody said, whoa, 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 we can't have a white supremacist as a county commissioner, but it's okay to have him as a judge in death penalty cases. And so so that's one way uh, uh, that I thought was interesting. There are, of course, um, racist prosecutions all the time. Uh, I wrote one essay about a a very, very mentally ill man, um, Andre Thomas, who was who who had he was a, a a black man who had white friends and white female friends and the prosecutor in closing after selecting a jury where three of the jurors came out overtly and said they don't believe in interracial marriage this was an interracial murder um three jurors that didn't believe in, in interracial marriage sat on the jury and then the prosecutor, without the defense attorneys doing anything about it, and then the, the, pro, the prosecutor in his closing said, how would you feel if this man, Andre Thomas, was dating your daughter or your granddaughter? And he's talking to an all-white jury. So, you know, racism is everywhere. It's in the, it's in the judiciary. It's, it's in the prosecution. It's in the defense attorneys sitting on their hands doing nothing. Um, it's in jurors. One of the essays is about a juror who said, I, I gave that N word, you know, the death penalty because of who he was basically. So, you know, it's not just one place. It's really, it's really omnipresent to a certain extent. And I'm really interested in uh, the notion that you bring up of, you know, improper judicial behavior, and you talk about racist judges and, and, and the example. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I've spent 15 years watching court cases. Um, and, you know, most of the time the judge is kind of a non-factor. Um, but then, you know, um, I, I, I listened to the audio book from the Chicago um, uh, trial uh, from, from the 1960s. And yeah. it was incredible listening to the judge. And it was just eye-opening how, how bad it could be. Or um, I remember uh, also reading uh, about um, the, the, the killing of, uh, why am I drawing a blank, the Black Panther from Chicago. Um, yeah, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton and, and the judge in that case just not allowing uh, vital evidence in, and you you don't realize how bad a judge can be until you see a really bad judge. I guess is is the bottom line. Um, it, so so in your experience, you know, uh, how big a factor is that? So so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna 
interpose a minor objection to the first thing you said, which is, you know, look, the ideal judge, it's just like John Roberts when he was getting brought onto the Supreme Court as the next chief justice. He said, he said, uh, uh, judges, the, the ideal judge is just a judge who calls balls and strikes. John Roberts must, I mean, I, he must have been in courtrooms, but he wasn't paying attention. The judge affects every decision in that courtroom. Um, they're, they're making so many decisions. And to think that they're all dictated by the law is naive. It, it, you know, uh, uh, judges affect trials in, in every regard. And so, um, you know, I, 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 have to, I mean, the Chicago case, and I think Aaron Sorkin did a phenomenal job. I don't know if you saw that movie, a great, I can't remember what it was called now, the Chicago 7 or whatever, whatever he called it. He did a great job there. That's, that's the exception. Um, a judge who is so overt, so out there, you know, so affecting the process. It's, that's not the problem because that judge at least is making no bones about it. Like you can, you can see it with your own eyes. It's the judges who make bad decisions one after another quietly that are the problem. Um, and, and, and so, you know, when I wrote these essays uh, in, my, in my afterward, I, I wrote something that I thought was important for the, for the readers to know, which is these essays are not outliers. This is typical. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure people understood that I wasn't, I wasn't picking the crazy cases to write about, the overt cases to write about. These are the typical cases. And so judges, you know, judges that make subtly bad decisions over and over and over again, that's typical. Um, you know, especially when we're electing judges and we're electing judges who are running on the platform of being pro-death penalty. And we're seeing that more and more these days. One of the essays is about the chief justice of Pennsylvania who had um, who had signed off on a capital prosecution of, of a man named Terry Williams and then went to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and ruled on the case and ran on the, on the platform that he had put 45 people on death row as a prosecutor. That was his platform to get on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. So this is typical. It's not rare. And, and I think that's important. Um, so, so can you provide some examples of kind of um, everyday rulings that, that make a huge difference in terms of death penalty cases? Sure. I mean, you're, you're, you're selecting, let's just start with the very beginning. Well, you start with the very beginning, which is pretrial motions. Judges have considerable discretion in cases. Um, I mean, the law allows judges to have that kind of discretion. So, you know, those issues can go unnoticed. I mean, let's go to voir dire where you're selecting jurors. Um, uh, 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 a, judge can, a judge can take a juror who is clearly pro-death penalty and then, and then lead that juror by saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you if you can set your opinions aside. Can you fairly consider both punishments? And when a judge, when a judge who's the kind of the power figure in the courtroom, um, 
asks those kinds of questions and kind of nods his or her head, you're going to get answers from jurors that are going to make them eligible to sit. But the judge is, is he's not looking for honesty in that juror. He's looking to make that juror eligible to sit. That's not the way to pick a fair jury. So, you know, in Vordeer, a judge that is going to involve him or herself in the selection process is going to have a huge effect on how that jury turns out. Um, and there are, I mean, there's, there's dozens of examples of uh, gory pictures. A judge has the discretion to keep those gory pictures out of the jury's sight or allow them in. That's a discretionary decision. A judge that consistently allows horrifying pictures to go in front of the jury is a judge that is weighing uh, uh, the, the case in favor of the state, right? But these are all, these are all discretionary decisions. Um, so yeah, a judge plays a huge role in, in, in many, many aspects of a capital case. And going back to, uh, you know, the issue of racism, um, where do we see race come into play here, though? Well, the first place you see it is in the charging process, right? So, you know, the prosecutor never has to seek the death penalty. There's no case that the prosecutor ever has to seek the death penalty. And many of our most horrific cases have ended in, in, in resolution um, without the death penalty ever being invoked at all. So, so the, the first aspect of the, of, the, uh, um, of the possible effect of race is in the charging process, is in whether the, whether the prosecutor decides to seek the death penalty in the first place. Um, from there, you know, there, there are other ways racism plays a role that people don't really think about it. For instance, um, in Philadelphia, we had court-appointed lawyers working for uh, $1,800 to prepare a capital case. Now, that's a, a ludicrously low amount of money. And you may not, the, the racism of that system is not, is not obvious initially. But when you think about it, the system is providing for 80 or 90% of the defendants a, a ridiculously unresourced, untrained uh, um, group of lawyers. So if, if most of the people facing the death penalty are African-American in Philadelphia, in, in any case, and the lawyers representing them are terribly under-resourced and under-trained, that's a racist system, right? That's a system that's not designed for justice. It's designed uh, 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 for expediency and for cost saving. So there's, there's, you know, there's racism just right off the bat in the system that's designed to represent indigent uh, defendants facing possible death. So, and I know you you mentioned this before, but you know, as you pointed out, we can fix that part of the system, right? We can fix we can we can fix yeah. If you're talking about having better defense lawyers, yes, we can absolutely fix that that part of the system. In in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is the only state that provides no money for indigent defense, none. So it's county by county, it's 67 counties fending for themselves. Well, you know, we can certainly begin to fix that process by bringing in uh, um, well-resourced, well-trained, uh, uh, competent 
capital lawyers to handle these cases. Many states have done that. Virginia got rid of the death penalty after they had trained lawyers um, who 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 basically stopped the death penalty. There weren't there wasn't a death sentence in Virginia for ten years. Then this, the legislature decided to get rid of it. They were just throwing away money. Um, so that yes, improving the defense function that can be done, no question about it. And and that seems like something we should do whether or not we have the death penalty, right? Of course. The idea that, that each of these counties is fending for itself is absurd, right? I mean, you know, a county that, that wants to spend its money on, 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 on better schools or fixing potholes may decide to save money on the backs of indigent defense. And, and you know, then, we're, we, we, you know, we might have good roads and nicer schools, but we certainly don't have a fair criminal justice system in that county. But I think one of the um, biggest issues, as I understand it, is um, the inequity in terms of who gets the death penalty uh, in, in terms of prosecutions. So, you know, if, if your victim is white, you're much more likely to get the death penalty than if your victim is black. Yeah, that, that, so that's exactly, I mean, there are two disparities here. One is, one is who's getting charged and then who's getting it. Um, you know, both of them are, are kind of infected with racism. And you're right, the, the, the victim, the race of the victim is really oftentimes the most controlling factor, uh, uh, you know, in the decision making. And this is why um, for decades, we did not allow victim impact uh, uh, evidence in the in the in the in the case because we realized the courts realized that the the status of the victim was oftentimes going to control whether a death sentence was returned or not, and that's of course a very arbitrary factor. But then the Supreme Court changed, and uh, and 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 suddenly victim impact evidence was acceptable. So, so David, you're you're exactly right. It's the it's the, uh, the 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 race and status of the victim that often decides. And of course, you know that's not how the system is supposed to work. And you also talk about um, you know the impact of judges and judges who uh, overrule the jury um, in terms of imposing the death penalty. Uh, is, is there a classic example that you can give of that? Well, so the first essay I wrote was, and let me just say this, the, the, the courts have recently uh, um, um, condemned judicial override. There's only a couple of places where it can still happen. And yet there are a lot of people, I think more than two dozen in, in, in Al on Alabama's death row um, who had judicial override. A judge overrode a jury's decision. One of them came very close to execution only a couple months ago uh, in Alabama. So the, the first essay I wrote about in the book is um, a, 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 a capital case where a jury voted 12 nothing for one gentleman to get life. His name was Buford White. And, and Buford was, was barely involved. Jury said 
12 nothing for life. The judge uh, overrode the jury and he was executed in a couple of years. Another man, way more involved in the death penalty, but very, very mentally ill, got a 12 nothing vote for death and, 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 and lived another 30 years before getting executed. So, you, you know, the disparity there is painful. Uh, um, you know, Buford White should never have been executed and yet was executed only a couple of years after the jury voted unanimously that he should not be executed. Um, you know, what can you say about that other than what the hell is going on? Um, I mean, it, there's no there's no logic to it whatsoever. And yet our United States Supreme Court has never condemned judicial override, even even today, 35 years later. And and this just lends into the notion that this is an arbitrary um, imposition of punishment. Yeah. So, you know, I, I called I called the book a descending spiral for a reason. Um, you know, the, the, the more you dig into it, the, the more kind of horrifying it seems that, that what Potter Stewart said was, um, what Potter Stewart said was, you know, getting a death sentence was being struck by, was like being struck by lightning. That's really the best phrase for it. I mean, you, you, you see routinely jur juries not returning death sentences in, in very serious cases and for very good reasons. And then you see other juries just coming back with death sentences for low functioning, uh, 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 low functioning defendants who, who uh, um, any way you, you cut it, their case wouldn't stack up to the more serious cases that get, that get life sentences. The, the arbitrariness is everywhere uh, in the charging decision in the in the, the 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 quality of the lawyers in the the jury decision which of course is impacted by the quality of the lawyers you know potter stewart was right then and there's absolutely no reason to think he's not right today uh, it's still be it's still like being struck by lightning um and then you you get kind of this range of problems and you alluded to uh some of this so so you have um, all of these um, defendants uh, who are kind of low functioning, you know, um, you, you see this, you know, question of how low is too low for IQ. Yeah. Um, then you have another whole host of cases where there are clear mental health problems and the system doesn't seem to be able to to come up with a reasonable um, way to handle uh, or account for, you know, mental illness that that falls short of the legal definition of insanity, and then you have this whole other problem of, you know, wrongful convictions and people that are, are potentially at least innocent, uh, which which infects you know, another percentage of cases. And then you get another, you know, area where there's all sorts of government misconduct, whether it's police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct. How do we deal with all but, of these problems? David, that's, wow. an, that's a hell of a question. And, I know. 
So there's like five different things I want to talk about. But you, you, one of the things that I wanted to talk about first is the concept of wrongful convictions. It's, it's, it's one of my, so, you know, in the book, I, I, I write, there's a couple of essays about innocent people, but I really want to expand the discussion beyond that. Um, because I think the, the concept of wrongful convictions is not simply, hey, my client was in Poughkeepsie at the time, right? That, I mean, it's, it's got to be, wrong, the concept of wrongful convictions has to be beyond pure innocence. Um, well, you know, we can't tolerate a system where prosecutors are hiding evidence, even if the client appears to be guilty. We can't tolerate a system where the lawyers are sleeping through trial or drunk or high, even if the client, uh, uh, you know, may be guilty. That's not justice. And so wrong, you know, wrongful, I, I, it's like kind of my, my, my pet thing going around talking about this. Wrong, the concept of wrongful convictions has to be separated or broadened from the concept of, 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 of uh, uh, innocent people in prison. That's not controversial. I, who's po who could possibly be in favor of innocent people being in prison? I know a couple of people that could be in favor, but most people are not, are not in favor of that. Um, but, but so, so I, I would love to spend a little more time talking about wrongful convictions. Let me talk about some of the other issues you brought up. Um, one of the essays is called How Crazy is Too Crazy to Be Executed? I'm not in love with that title because it sounds glib a little bit, but, but it, it brings home an important concept, which is, you know, we have, we, we, you know, we have rightfully decided that juveniles can no longer be executed. Uh, and we've rightfully decided that intellectually disabled people cannot, can no longer be executed. And the reason we've made those decisions is because those two groups of people are less, in, are, are less, uh, uh, um, it, you know, inculpatory. I mean, their their thought processes make them less guilty because they are unable to answer to anticipate, you know, future issues and and you know all the consequences of committing crimes. Um, and yet, we don't have the same problem with profoundly mentally ill people who are just as uh, uh, unable to process. Um, the consequences, just as unable to negotiate the criminal justice system, just as um, likely to get caught up in, in mistakes or police tricks, all the reasons we don't, uh, um, all the reasons we don't execute the, the, the intellectually disabled or the um, or juveniles should logically apply to um, profoundly mentally ill people. And yet, we, we, we don't, we see that as a different category. That's, I can't understand exactly what the thinking is there. So in, in, in one of these essays, Andre Thomas, the same man who suffered the, the racial inequity of yours opposed to interracial marriage and the prosecutor talking about, do you want this man to date your, your daughter? He's also profoundly mentally ill. Um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to horrify the listeners here, but Andre Thomas removed one of his eyes after his arrest um, and then blinded himself several years later. He's now a blind man on Texas's death row with an execution date. Texas is actually contemplating 
executing this profoundly mentally ill man with a, a, a long history of, of uh, um, mental illness, a long documented history of mental illness. And Texas is still, uh, 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 still feels it necessary to try to execute him. So, I mean, and you, you, you mentioned a couple of other things in your question. I can't even, I can't even re remember now. Um, I guess one of them was prosecutorial misconduct. Some of these essays deal with prosecutors who withhold evidence, then uh, 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 DNA or, or other evidence comes to light where the, where the defendant is clearly innocent of the charge and the prosecutors still insist he's guilty. It's, it's like some sort of a, of a mindset where the, the worst thing you can do is admit you made a mistake. Um, I'm just ranting at this point, David. Folk, you can get me back into focus. Feel free. Um, yeah, no, you're on a roll. How do we address also the over-prosecution on some cases where they're not necessarily innocent, but they've overstated what they've done? Yeah. So, you know, the, the problem you're putting your finger on now is what we call the leveraging of the death penalty, which is we'll use the death penalty, we'll, we'll use the threat of the death penalty to, uh, um, to get people um, scared to go to trial and, and, and to, plead, to get them to plead guilty. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, um, one of the essays in the book, I'm, I'm looking it up just to, because I can't remember, I can't remember what I called it, um, the Confessions of Innocent Men was a situation where, where two low-functioning guys got arrested for a, a, a serious murder of, a, of an eye doctor, and uh, they were both threatened with the, with, the, with the death penalty. They both confessed to the crime, and one of them, a, a, a man who was clearly intellectually disabled, this is years ago, though, uh, a man who was clearly intellectually disabled took a deal for 15 to 30 years and actually testified against his friend. Um, both of them, 20 years later, were proven to be clearly innocent. So this one guy, both of them were so scared that they confessed. One guy was so scared that he actually took a deal for many years in prison and testified against his friend. But both were completely innocent. That shows you that the, the, the power of the death penalty and how it can coerce, especially when someone is, is, is intellectually disabled or low functioning. Um, and and, and the these two men were clearly innocent. I know because I was representing the guilty man who confessed 20 years later and there was tons of evidence against, against him and, and his partner. So that just shows you how coercive the death penalty can be. And that's the, that's the issue with, I'm not exactly getting to overcharging, but that's, that's a problem when, when, when prosecutors go out of their way to, to seek the death penalty with the idea of getting a plea down. There are many other cases we see all the time, many child killings, and particularly in Pennsylvania, um, you know, are, are, those are, you know, horrendous crimes. And, atmospherically very bad 
but they almost never involve a specific intent to kill, which in Pennsylvania is required. So, you know, uh, uh, these cases are, 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 are awful to talk about, but they rarely involve an intent to kill the baby or to kill the child. Uh, it, it generally happens uh, um, through, you know, recklessness or, or reckless indifference. But in Pennsylvania, that's not, that's not a capital case. And so prosecutors that are seeking death, knowing that there isn't a specific intent to kill, that's what they're doing, what you're talking about. They're overreaching. And, you know, that's what's dangerous about the death penalty. It is very, very coercive. For sure. And there, there's also another angle to kind of the mental health crisis that you talk about, um, you know, where, where you have children that end up uh, killing their abusers, women that end up killing their abusers, um, you know, and then also the traumatized people that end up um, coming out of an abusive situation damaged, and then they end up uh, killing someone. So, I, I mean, and, and that doesn't count as you know insanity either, and we don't right. seem to be able to disentangle that either. So let me tell you the story of Terry Williams. I think I mentioned him earlier. The essay is called When a Kid Kills His Longtime Abuser, Who's the Victim? Terry Williams came within two hours of execution. He was an 18-year-old kid who had killed his abuser. The prosecutor, uh, uh, the prosecutor uh, uh, kept evidence that the victim was an abuser from the defense attorney. She, she eliminated all of the all of the evidence that he was in fact an abuser and she made him sound like an innocent victim. The defense lawyer met his client, 18 year old Terry Williams, one day before his capital trial. Terry came within two hours of execution and, and the prosecutor who is who at the time was advocating to, to lengthen the time for victims of sexual abuse to come forward, trying to make it easier for sexual abuse victims to come forward at the same time was trying to execute Terry Williams because he hadn't come forward as an 18 year old kid who had just met his lawyer one day before his capital trial. So the hypocrisy of that scenario is astounding. And the, the lack of sense, this is the pre Krasner Philadelphia district attorney's office. The, the lack of sensitivity um, was astounding. And Terry Williams had had a judge not ordered the prosecutor's file to be opened, and had the defense attorneys not seen the whitewashing of the discovery that was provided, he would be a dead man today, um, and uh, killed his abuser. So, I guess the last question I'll I'll ask you for now is, you know, what do we do about? Um, you know, the clear cut case, maybe a Ted Bundy, right? Bad guy, clearly intelligent, simply didn't care. Um, or, you know, kind of the poster children for the death penalty case, because clearly a, a lot of these cases, a lot of people will say, well, you know, okay, you know, I support the death penalty, but yeah, maybe not in this case. How do you respond to that? I love that question. And, and, but you're not, you may not, you may not, 
you may not. <laughs> I love that question. Let me just say that. So let me let you, you mentioned Ted Bundy and I get this a lot. You know, what very few people know is that the prosecutor did not think that it was necessary to execute Ted Bundy. Prosecutor offered Ted Bundy a life sentence. Bundy was, and you said there's, you know, I, I don't know, you didn't really mean it. You said, let's assume that he, there was nothing wrong with him. There was a lot wrong with Ted Bundy. He was a profoundly traumatized guy. A lot of things wrong with him. He was unable to, to navigate the system, to understand th that he should have taken that life sentence. So the interesting thing about the, about the Bundy situation is that the prosecutor didn't think it was necessary to execute him. We have these, at, you know, these maximum security prisons that, 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 that make the death penalty almost, almost not, not almost, completely not necessary because we can protect the society. But let's talk about some other awful cases. We just experienced one in Florida, you know, a couple of months ago. The Parkland case, that's a perfect example of how people that are not, you know, they're not necessarily paying close attention. They just know how, how awful the case was. And of course, it was a horrifying case. But that jury saw fit not to, not to give uh, 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 Nicholas Cruz the death penalty. They saw the, 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 the profound and compelling mitigation story that was provided there. And so they looked at that case and they, and they decided, you know, we can protect the community. We can punish Nicholas Cruz, but we don't need the death penalty. So, so you know, what, what I say to, to, the, to people is we've got these maximum security prisons. The death penalty is more costly. It's more, it, it's, it's, it's going to take years and years of litigation before it's achieved and we can keep our communities safe. So, you know, what I say, I can, all, I mean, I can, I'm happy to give you my, my moral metaphor about the death penalty. Uh, I'll, I'll throw that in just at the end. It's, it's, it's from the Lion King. The, the, and I'm talking about the animated Disney version of the Lion King, where Mufasa is this, uh, uh, um, Mufasa is this great citizen. He's the leader of his community. And he's intentionally murdered by Scar, his brother. And, um, and then Scar compounds the, 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 the murder, the, the aggravation of the murder, by basically blaming uh, uh, his son. Mufa uh, it's Mufasa, Scar, and Simba. He, he frames Simba for the crime. So Simba grows up thinking he's responsible for his father's death and Scar does it for, for the worst possible reasons, which is he wants to take over the, the pride of the lions. And Simba grows up and he confronts Scar. And Scar, he, they have kind of a lion-like trial and they roll around in the dust and Simba ends up on top of them. And, and Scar says, what are you gonna do now, Simba? Are you gonna kill me? And I, 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 years and years ago, I stopped the tape and asked my six-year-old daughter what she thought Simba should do. She said, it's not nice to kill people, even if they're mean. And, and, and um, you know, try to imagine what, 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 what's, what Simba says are the classic words from my point of view, which is, I'm not like you, Scar. I'm not gonna act like a heinous criminal 
right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do to you what you did to my father. Um, I'm not gonna act in, in a horrible way. And 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 instead he 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 basically uh, bars uh, Scar from the community. That's kind of a a life sentence, uh, you know, for 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 lions. But try to imagine for one second if Disney had rewritten the movie and had Simba saying, "Yes, Scar, I'm gonna tie you to a gurney, I'm gonna load up this syringe with poison, and I'm gonna inject it into you until you're dead." Every six-year-old in the theater would go screaming out of the theater and the parents would be suing Disney for trauma, right? Because we all know that that's, that's no way for a good person to act. Simba should not be injecting Scar with poison. Um, and yet, we've got no trouble doing that as adults. And so somewhere between the age of six and the age of adulthood, we lose the sense that it's not nice to kill people even if they're mean. Uh, murder is just, it's just wrong any way you cut it. So that's my moral pitch against it. That's, that's my moral guidance uh, against the death penalty. Perfect way to end. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, we've been talking with Mark Bookman. He's the author of A Descending Spiral, Exposing the Death Penalty in 12 Essays. I highly recommend the book. Thanks for joining us this week. David, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www justiceforgeorgepowell.com that's justiceforgeorgepowell all one word dot com